Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. There has been a lot of movement lately in global currencies. The pound, euro, and Canadian dollar have all shown signs of weakness, putting further pressure on investors and consumers. So, as investors grapple with how the dip in regulated currencies are affecting their portfolio, many are looking to alternative asset classes, particularly cryptocurrencies. Recently, Ethereum, the second largest cryptocurrency, made a big move on the blockchain network called The Merge, and leading to an increased investor interest as it paves the way for a greener crypto future. On September 28th, Fidelity Investments Canada announced the launch of two new products, Fidelity Advantage Ether ETF and Fidelity Advantage Ether ETF Fund. So here on today's show, we welcome Portfolio Manager Ritu Kumra and Digital Asset Strategist Megan Chen, joining host Pamela Ritchie for a look at what exactly is Ether, how does it differ from Bitcoin, and how could these two new products for Canadian investors leverage your portfolio in a time of market uncertainty. This podcast was recorded on September 28th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Welcome. Great to see you both. Thank you for having us. Great to have you join us. Congratulations. It's a big day. Um, So Megan, if you don't mind, I'll begin with you a bit on what is Ether. We need to ask these initial questions. What is it? How does it differ from Bitcoin? How do you want to explain that? Sure. So a background, a blockchain network is a decentralized network of computers uh, called nodes. And each node on the network processes and records all the transactions that take place on the network. And the transaction record takes the form of a chain of blocks where each block specifies a set of transactions. And this is called blockchain. So Bitcoin was launched in 2009 and it was the first ever blockchain network to be established. Um, And while Bitcoin focuses on being a simple payments network, Ethereum is more flexible than Bitcoin in the sense that Ethereum aims to be a general platform for different kinds of applications. And this is why you hear about things like DeFi applications or NFTs that live on the Ethereum network, but not on Bitcoin. So uh, DeFi stands for decentralized finance, and it refers to blockchain applications that provide financial services to users. Um, such as borrowing and lending services, but without needing a centralized intermediary. And an NFT stands for non-fungible token. And it's a type of blockchain token that can be used to represent the ownership of different kinds of assets. The idea being that NFTs allow um, asset ownership to be stored on a decentralized ledger, as opposed to in uh, centralized corporate databases. Now, Bitcoin is the only token on the Bitcoin network. But because of Ethereum's flexibility, there are actually thousands of tokens on the Ethereum network. Now, the token that our fund is investing in is called Ether. And okay. Ether is a fundamental token or the native token of the Ethereum network, meaning it's the token used to pay all the transaction fees 
on the Ethereum network. So anyone who wants to transact on Ethereum would need to own some Ether. And that's why the value of Ether is directly connected to the level of activity on the Ethereum network, whether it be activity associated with DeFi, NFTs, and so on. Okay, that's super helpful. It gives us a bit of a landscape view. Ritu, would love you to help us understand, again, kind of why we need to be thinking about this a bit on the short term, which is kind of all the news about the merge. Love to get your thoughts. And then also sort of the longer term reason that we want to be looking at this. Yes. Great question, Pamela. So the merge has actually been quite topical and actually took place um, in the middle of September, specifically on September 15th in the early morning. It was a culmination of years of work and it actually went off without a hitch. So what is the merge? The merge is actually a change in the way transactions were approved on the, on the Ethereum network. So we moved from a proof of work consensus mechanism, which is actually what Bitcoin is currently using, to proof of stake consensus mechanism. So to backtrack on what each of these are, the proof of work consensus mechanism is a way that approvers, or which are called miners, approve transactions on proof of work. And so what they do is they compete amongst each other and they solve very complex mathematical problems using electricity. Now, with proof of stake, the approvers who are actually validators are randomly selected on the Ethereum network in order to approve these transactions. And in order to keep the uh, validators honest, they have to stake or use their own Ether as collateral, which could potentially get slashed if dishonesty is found. Now, there are a lot of advantages moving on to the proof of stake network. And um, the most obvious one is the fact that energy usage has gone down. So this has actually happened to the tune of 99.9%. So this is actually a common criticism of Bitcoin. Other advantages are increased security, Ether has now become a yield-based token. And um, your question on, you know, what happens kind of in the medium or long term, what happens is um, it becomes a gateway to scalability, which uh, we won't necessarily see today, but it's something to be thinking about in the medium term. And so that will help with lowering transaction fees as well. Now, one piece that is actually not as visible and perhaps the most important part of moving on to proof of stake is the inflation rate has gone down materially. So Ether pre-merge used to be at roughly 4% inflation, and now we're roughly at about 20 basis points. And so to put that into perspective, Bitcoin, which is considered a store of value, is actually in the high 1% range. So heading into the merge um, over the summer and even since the merge, there's been a lot of volatility in the, in the space. And so what we saw is um, Ether has ran up quite a bit heading into the merge. And since then, it's actually uh, underperformed materially. And so what we saw was pre-positioning heading into the merge, whether it's through market participants or even validators. And since the merge, we have actually seen an increase in validators staking Ether but there's been some negative headlines. And so we saw the SEC come out and just make some comments on how Ether can be considered a security. So kind of implying that there's going to be increased regulatory scrutiny. And we saw Ethereum miners um, get rid of their tokens, given they're not necessarily being used anymore. So it ended up effectively being a sell the news event. Very interesting. That's fascinating. So Megan, tell us then about the value proposition. We're getting sort of into why investors need to really be thinking about this. 
So Ether aims to provide a decentralized infrastructure for different kinds of applications. And such a decentralized infrastructure can have a several potential advantages, which forms its value proposition. So one thing is security. No entity, no one entity controls the network. No single entity can shut it down. And there's no central point of vulnerability or failure. Another point is uh, transparency. So all the applications on the Ethereum network, the code that's behind those applications are publicly visible. And so anyone can go and look at exactly how these applications work on, on a code level. Um, another advantage is accessibility. So anyone from anywhere can access the network and its applications without any permission. And these applications should also be highly uh, resistant to censorship. Another important point is the idea of self-custody. So this means that users on the network can be the guardians of their own assets on the blockchain without having to trust a third-party custodian to custody their assets, um, like a bank, for example. And so the way it works is that users can hold cryptographic keys called private keys that are linked to their blockchain assets. And these keys are the only way to a user funds on an open and decentralized ledger. So these are some elements of Ethereum's value proposition. Yeah, that's fascinating. We'll sort of swing around to more as we go. Ritu, I mean, ultimately, the drivers, the sort of use case question for sure, longer term, how does that come into this story? That's, um, that's a great question. So similar to how I think about Bitcoin, I like to think about Ether from a supply and demand perspective. So let's start off with, uh, with demand. So Short term, I think that we might, as I alluded to earlier, I think we might see uh, short term demand from um, additional validators wanting to stake their ETH, given all the benefits I had spoken about earlier, um, including the fact that Ether is now uh, yield bearing. But longer term, it's all about user and development activity. So um, I think that that will accelerate just given the scalability piece that we talked about earlier and how with the merge, um, eventually we should see improved scalability. Now, it's interesting because as much as we are in a crypto winter right now, if you go to a developer conference, which I was at one just a couple of months ago, it would not seem to be the case. There's very, very active development con continuing to happen. And so what, what is happening? What's happening in the background? So there are a few different categories to consider that uh, Megan alluded to earlier. So the first one and the killer use case would be DeFi. And so there's a lot of financial innovation happening within DeFi, which um, you know Megan defined earlier as being decentralized finance. And so that effectively is a decentralized parallel financial system that allows for like a suite of products and services for uh, for people to use. And so you know you can try trade, you can borrow, you can lend, you can invest, just to name a few items. And so there's constant innovation happening within the DeFi space. Megan also alluded to NFTs and gaming. And so within NFTs and gaming, that, that really took off in 2021 and it allowed artists to go directly to, their, to the consumer um, without that middleman using, using blockchain technology. And so I think what we might see there is it, it allows for the mainstream investor or consumer to actually be pulled into the crypto ecosystem and starting off with NFTs, but then you know, potentially broadening their reach thereafter. 
In another category, this is something that co-founder Vitalik Uterin of, of Ethereum has been talking about a little bit lately is soulbound tokens. And we're very much in the early innings there. So let's let's see what happens there. So while, you know, the, the demand story is actually quite compelling, um, if you actually move to supply, I think that that's where it gets really interesting. So you on mentioned supply, scalability. And so yeah, I was just kind of curious uh, how those all fit together. Yeah, well, so scalability, I think uh, what we'll see, it's not happening immediately, but after the next few updates on the on the blockchain uh, network, I think we're going and on Ethereum, we're going to see um, improved scalability through sharding. And so that will the timeline's a little uncertain right now, but but we'll see. Moving on to supply, we know that Bitcoin has a fixed supply schedule. It has a cap. I talked about earlier how Ether is actually a 20 basis point of inflation, but it's not necessarily always going to stay at 20 basis points. And this is going to be driven by two items. One is how much Ether is actually staked. And number two, and that will actually drive the yield and how much is actually issued. Um, but number two, the transaction fees. And so the more congested the network is, the higher the transaction fees. And part of that transaction fee is actually burnt. So it's permanently removed from the system. And so if you have a view that there could be increased congestion on the Ethereum network, you could be in a scenario where Ether becomes deflationary. And so you put that all together and it becomes very compelling. But beyond that, there is 30% of the outstanding supply of Ether that's actually temporarily taken out of the system. And that's through um, the collateral that's used from staking, as well as the collateral that's used for DeFi. So you put this all together, you have short-term and long-term um, demand drivers through staking, DeFi, NFTs, and gaming. And then you have a disinflationary token that's roughly 20 basis points. And then you have 30% of the outstanding supply that's actually temporarily taken out of the system. So it's creating some really good fundamentals there. But I think beyond this, I think we all have to be aware of what the current macroeconomic environment is. And, you know, it's it's been quite volatile with interest rates moving up. And so risk assets are being impacted and, and Bitcoin, Ethereum, the entire crypto space is no exception. Right. Yeah, for sure. OK, well, let's go, Megan, let's go ultimately to risks. I'm sure some of the macro pieces come into that. Kind of the risks that are known by people like you, and then the truly unknown pieces. So let's go into some of that and answer some of those questions for investors. So there are several types of risks associated with an investment in Ether. Right off the top, there are competitive risks. So although Ethereum is currently the largest infrastructure blockchain by users, by market cap, um, and so on, there are other blockchain uh, infrastructure blockchains out there, such as Solana, Cardano, or Avalanche, that could one day uh, end up uh, surpassing Ethereum in terms of adoption for various reasons. Another type of risk is technological. So the development of Ethereum is only about 55% achieved, according to Vitalik Buterin, which is uh, one of the co-founders. And so there will be future upgrades related to improving key aspects of the network, such as its security, its scalability, which uh, Ritu already alluded to, and as well as uh, making the network more decentralized. And the future adoption of Ethereum will depend uh, critically on the success or the failure of these future development efforts. Another area is regulatory risks. So the regulation around digital assets is currently still very nascent across the main jurisdictions. Main jurisdictions such as the US uh, and the EU have made significant progress with regards to digital assets regulation by way of, uh, for example, stablecoin regulation or the regulation of crypto asset service providers. But there does still remain quite a bit of uncertainty around 
uh, key questions such as securities law as it relates to DeFi tokens, intellectual property standards for NFTs, as well as taxation policy of various uh, digital assets. I will say that uh, some regulation can certainly be positive for the ecosystem because it can foster stability and it can foster adoption. But uh, an inappropriate regulatory framework or uh, one that's unfavorable can certainly hinder the space that is still quite nascent. Another category of risks is centralization risks. Uh, I do want to dig into this a little bit more because centralization risks really go to the heart of blockchain's ideology. So various points of centralization are actually threatening to undermine the principle of decentralization. So what do you mean by that? What, what is the centralization that's happening? Blockchain technology is built on a principle of decentralization and the value proposition of blockchain is based on the fact that blockchains are actually decentralized. But in practice, various points of centralization will come in and introduce, say, concentrated points of failure or the possibility of censorship. Now, there are various points of centralization that exist currently, um, but I'll just give one or two examples. So one example is that many users don't actually run their own node. They rely on large third-party node operators to run the nodes for them and to access the network that way. So this introduces censorship right off the top. Now that Ethereum has moved to proof-of-stake consensus, a lot of users, uh, so you can only really directly stake ETH if you run your own node. Now, a lot of users, like I said, don't run their own node. So what they do is they have to stake via a third-party staking provider. Currently, the top four staking entities on Ethereum control over 50% of the stake of Ethereum. That's four entities over 50% of the total stake. You can see where centralization risks sort of come in there. And another point is that uh, many of those companies that link cryptocurrencies with traditional systems, such as uh, major stablecoin issuers or major cryptocurrency exchange platforms, are centralized. And these centralized entities can play an important role and have an important impact on the ecosystem as a whole. So introducing systemic risk, for example. Now, centralization risks are very topical recently. Because um, in August, so last month, the United States government sanctioned for the first time ever a blockchain protocol. It was called Tornado Cash. And Tornado Cash was sanctioned because of anti-money laundering reasons. But actually, it is also a protocol that is heavily used to improve the confidentiality of users and for legitimate purposes. But after the transactions were imposed, what happened was that various points of centralization ended up serving as choke points to hinder the activity uh, related to the protocol and to make it very difficult for most users to access the protocol, which really does go against the value, one of the elements in the value proposition that we discussed earlier, namely censorship resistance. So this is why Ethereum's roadmap, the main objective really of Ethereum's roadmap is to further improve decentralization. So we may hopefully see these risks as addressed in, in the years to come. Okay, that's fascinating. It's, it's a real sort of tour through some of the things that we've heard a little bit, but you're helping us understand why they're important ultimately to, to what we're discussing today. Ritu, I feel like that actually jives pretty well with what I was hoping to ask you next, which is sort of related to the security piece, you know, against some of the risks that are out there, ultimately why owning a Fidelity ETF that is 
helping you with this might might be better? I mean, wh- where is sort of the risk slash security discussion there? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, there's a number of factors to consider here. And so first, um, in Canada, we are in a position to actually hold spot ETFs, which um, is very unique to Canada and unlike what we have in the US. Number two, We actually have an extensive history with digital assets. And so this all started back in 2014 through the Fidelity Center of Applied Technology when research and development efforts truly began. That was followed um, in 2018 with the launch of Fidelity Digital Assets, where the vision was to have an institutional grade platform for trading and storage solutions. And then number three, you know, as you mentioned, you know, security is very topical and very top of mind. And so with um, with this ETF, what we do is uh, we are using Fidelity Clearing Canada as our custodian and Fidelity Digital Assets as our subcustodian. So Fidelity Clearing Canada was the first nationally regulated custodian in Canada for digital assets. And Fidelity Digital Assets has a number of items that they go through in order to ensure that security. So That could be physical or operational or cyber. So physically, we have a number of geographically dispersed military-style bunkers with 24-7 monitoring and uh, very rigorous entry protocols. You know, so so from a cyber perspective, we actually only have 2% of of liquidity in, in an actual hot wallet. The rest is either in cold storage or deep cold storage. And then lastly, just from an operational standpoint, there's no one person that can execute any given task within Fidelity Digital Assets. And so the opportunity for an internal bad actor uh, just is, is very low. And then just lastly, it's a very easy way to, um, to get exposure and to invest in, in digital assets. Perfect. Okay. So Megan, let's just go back in time a little bit because I feel like I just want to come back to what you described at the beginning. The difference between what we're talking about today, the launch, Ether, Ethereum network, why is it different to Bitcoin? Why why should investors sort of hold these differently? Sure. So Bitcoin uh, was the first to launch, the first blockchain network to launch, and it really does focus on being a simple payments network. Uh, so the type of transactions you'll see on the Bitcoin network are going to be things like Alice sends Bob 10 Bitcoin, Bob sends Charlie 5 Bitcoin, and so on. Uh, meanwhile, Ethereum aims to be much more flexible than Bitcoin. So it's a general platform on which uh, different kinds of applications can be built. And so this goes back to the discussion earlier on DeFi and NFTs. These things exist on Ethereum, um, but not on Bitcoin. And so, but so far this year, I will say that although these two networks are really fundamentally different, investors have tended to trade them similarly, you know, in, in the past. If you look at the correlation between Bitcoin and Ether, it's, it's ranged between 80 and 90% historically. And I think this is a function of the fact that uh, this asset class is still nascent and investors uh, are still learning about it. And I think that hopefully going forward, when investors learn more about this asset class, other matures, you'll start seeing different cryptocurrencies trade differently according to their fundamentals and, and how they're different, you know, in terms of their uh, value proposition. But so far this year, we've seen Bitcoin and Ether go down about 60% and 65% respectively. I think a lot of this has been driven by macro pressures on risk assets more broadly. So we've seen correlations between cryptocurrencies and risk assets go up quite significantly year to date. Um, And another factor is that as investors look to de-risk their portfolios, cryptocurrencies are usually one of the first things to go. 
Okay, that's really interesting. I'm glad you addressed the macro and sort of ultimately how that's affected things and, and maybe ultimately how that'll affect things going forward. Rita, I want to ask you then with, with some of those thoughts in our minds and how it's traded, where does it belong within portfolio construction? Like it's it's part of the diversification story, but you know, how should investors think about including this? Right. So I'll take you back to, to Bitcoin and how, how we think about Bitcoin. So um, we've historically talked about Bitcoin as being, you know, digital gold, a hedge against a debasement of currency or an inflation hedge. And so historically, we've talked about um, Bitcoin as being appropriate in terms of a one to three percent allocation. So just a slice in portfolios, just given historically what we've seen is improved uh, of risk adjusted returns, as well as um, we've seen Bitcoin itself being very uncorrelated to other asset classes over the long term. So when it comes time to Ether, I think there's a place for Ether within that one to three percent allocation. And I think it's important to also understand basically what what Megan was just saying right now, that the correlation is high to Bitcoin, um, but it's a nice complement. It is further on the risk spectrum as well. And so the beta is higher as well. So Meg has actually done some really good work on this, where um, she took a look at, the, at historically what we've seen and um, what the sharp ratios are for a traditional 60-40 rebalanced quarterly and um, how, how that changes when you implement you know, a 2% allocation to, to crypto. So what she saw was that that uh, traditional 60-40 sharp ratio, so a measure of risk-adjusted returns, was 0.47. And um, that actually improved, uh, sorry, 0.46. And that actually improved with a 2% allocation of Bitcoin to 0.67. So that really improved your, your risk-adjusted returns. If you take a look at that, 2% allocation of, of Bitcoin and then add in Ether on a market cap weighted basis, that Sharpe ratio actually further improved to 0.71. So um, it's, it's, this is all based on historical data and uh, based on regular rebalancing, but it just shows how the potential for uh, improved risk adjusted returns can happen with, a, with a, just a small allocation. But underlying all of that is the true belief in the fundamentals and the drivers that we talked about in terms of Ether today, but historically what we've talked about with, with Bitcoin. So you really truly have to believe in the technology, believe in the asset class. And now moving on to the macro, you know, macro is being impacted by rising rates. Um, there's central bank tightening all over the world. And so um, that's hitting all asset classes, not only risk assets. And so it's putting, putting pressure on on asset classes and, um, and you know, Bitcoin and Ether are no exception there. Megan, I want to get this question in. So still asking about the merge, you have a white paper, which I think is what Ritu was referring to. And it's, I think we put around a poll here asking who wants to get access to it. So we're going to look at your incredible research there. This question I think is for you in terms of standards for cryptocurrencies. There is a discussion, the discussions of SWIFT, which is the international payment system, of course, and ISO. 2000 compliance, is that something that you consider? How do you put that in perspective, Megan? So I think that, you know, there is a lot of discussion around centralized currency systems, like what we traditionally have had and, you know, alternative cryptocurrency systems. I think both have a place in the future. So, you know, national currencies have their advantages. They allow for independent monetary policy. There's going to be um, many countries are developing what's called central bank digital currencies. And these have potential advantages in terms of financial inclusion and improving transparency and efficiency of payments and so on. But I think at the same time, it's important to have uh, systems like Bitcoin and Ether that provide alternative 
uh, monitoring financial systems that do not rely on powerful central entities. So it's important to have both. And I think that going forward, when um, central bank digital currencies are introduced, this will potentially increase government power and central bank power, which further reinforces actually the argument for the existence of alternative systems such as Bitcoin or Ether. But I do think that because both types of systems do have their respective advantages, going forward, we will see more of a coexistence of centralized and decentralized a very interesting day to be speaking to both of you about the importance of looking at other alternatives and we're watching what is happening with currencies right now. It's a wild day. Ritu and Megan, thank you very much for your time, for taking us through this. It's great to see you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.